At the tender young age of 16, a Chinese student named Wendy enrolled in Guangzhou Medical College in China. Two years into her medical studies, Wendy met an American woman called Joyce while she was studying English. Joyce and her businessman husband Jake had come over from the States and they were helping build a refrigerator factory in China. One year later, in 1988, Wendy decided to abandon her medical studies in China and head over to the United States to study. Jake and Joyce sponsored her student visa. While Wendy was living with Jake and Joyce back in the States, Joyce discovered that Wendy was having an affair with Jake. Wendy was 30 years younger than Jake and Joyce demanded that Wendy leave the house. Wendy left, but much to his discredit, Jake soon followed and went to live with Wendy in her new house. Jake later divorced his wife Joyce and married Wendy in 1990. Their marriage officially lasted two years and seven months, but Jake would later explain that after four or five months, Wendy met a man called David and started spending more time with him and Jake and Wendy's relationship ended. Five years later, in 1997, Wendy met a man called Rupert at a company function in Hong Kong. At that time, Rupert was married to Anna Maria. Wendy had been divorced once, Rupert had been divorced once but it would seem Rupert's second marriage was also in trouble. Two years later, in 1999, Rupert divorced his second wife and three months after the divorce was finalised, married Wendy. This marriage divided Rupert's family deeply, some siding with Rupert and Wendy and some siding against. And it also caused inheritance disputes. Rupert was a wealthy man and, of course, The previous kids wanted to know what would happen to their inheritance. Now there was a new wife and new children being added into the mix. 14 years later, in June 2013, Rupert filed for divorce with Wendy, citing irreconcilable differences. If the AGE website is correct, Rupert Murdoch and Wendy Ding have two children together, Chloe, aged 11, uh, sorry, Grace, aged 11, and Chloe, now nine. Rupert's been divorced three times and Wendy twice. I tell this story not so we can judge or attribute fault or character flaws to the people in the story. It's not for us to judge, that's God's role. But I tell this story to show how in real life divorce and affairs have massive consequences, not just for the people involved in them but also for the extended family. It's not clear what Joyce did after her husband left her Uh, We don't know what Jake did after Wendy then left him. But what we do know is that in the space of a few short years, Jake's marriage not only to Joyce had evaporated but also to Wendy had dissolved and Jake was left with nothing but the mess from two failed relationships. Joyce, of course, had had lost her husband. And it's not clear what's going to happen to Rupert Murdoch and Wendy Deng's children, uh, whether they're going to be with their dad or with their mum whether once everything settles down, uh, whether the kids are actually going to see their biological mother or father again after this is all finished. And of course for Rupert and Wendy, this will have personal consequences on them. There's, there's no way I'm sure that you can walk away from a marriage of 14 years without leaving a piece of yourself behind in the process. Sometimes we can be tempted in our hearts and minds to think of affairs or divorce in, in kind of rosy terms. Sometimes we think that... Uh, 
that they would be a good thing, they might be exciting or alluring or, or attractive for us, but the reality is often far different and far more miserable and tragic than we realise. In 1967, psychiatrists Thomas Holmes and Robert Ray conducted uh, an examination of some medical records of 5,000 patients. They were wanting to determine whether stressful events in someone's life had an impact and a lead into illnesses in those people's life. People were asked to tally a list of 43 different life events on a relative score. These life events included things like changing jobs and getting fired, and I assume for many people, and the opposite way around, uh, shifting home, and a, and a whole list of other life events that would happen in the entire course of someone's life. Of the 43 different events that could happen to a person, divorce was judged the second most stressful event in someone's life. The only thing worse than divorce was the death of a spouse. No matter who you are, no matter how much you have, divorce is a very stressful and traumatic event. But Jesus wants to save us from the pain and the mess and the guilt of failed relationships. He wants to save us not only from the consequences for the husband and the wife themselves, but he also wants to save us from the wider consequences that divorce has on the connected families of those people, on the way that relationships tend to break down over time with all those people as well and the relationships they'd formed during the marriage. Jesus has a better plan for us, a more fulfilling and beneficial way to live and it all starts with the state of our hearts. As we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount for the past few weeks, you've probably started to pick up the vibe and the general, uh, the general gist of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus keeps talking about these various aspects of our hearts and our minds. Jesus wants to know what's going on inside our hearts and our minds. What are we thinking? How are we thinking? Why are we thinking those things? But of course, Jesus doesn't just want to know what's going on. He also wants to transform and change that. In short, Jesus wants to purify our hearts. And this morning there are two key areas of our thoughts and our minds and our hearts that Jesus wants us to think about. He wants us to think about our faithfulness and integrity in marriage and also our faithfulness and integrity in speech. As we turn to verse 31 of chapter 5 and we look at what faithfulness in marriage means, Jesus shows us the common misunderstanding of God's will for marriage that people had 2,000 years ago. Verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now if you go back and you look at the original passage that the Pharisees are quoting from there in Deuteronomy 24.1, you'll see it was an if statement. It said, if a man finds something indecent about his wife, then he may divorce her. It wasn't a command that he must. It was nothing to do with the certificate. It was, it was about the situation of the heart. But people had twisted this verse to infer that, well, as long as you give your wife a certificate of divorce, well, it doesn't really matter what you divorce her for. You know, she... It could be something trivial, as long as you give her a certificate of divorce. You know, as long as you tick the box, it became a legalistic exercise. The view of many in Jesus' day was that divorce was something that you, you kind of did for convenience sake. If, if, if the marriage was meeting your needs, if you were happy, then you kept married. And if the marriage wasn't meeting your needs, well, you got divorced. And if this view of marriage sounds familiar, then... Uh, it's probably because many people today still have the same view of divorce. Not much has changed in 2,000 years. 
But it's interesting to observe Jesus' reaction to this statement. I mean, he doesn't mince words, he doesn't try and come out gently, he comes straight out, says clearly, we should be keeping marriages together. Instead of asking, how can we get out of this, we need to be asking, how can we make this work? As fair to say, as we read verse 32, this is an extreme statement. I expect that, you know, around the barbecue on the weekend, if you came out straight away and just said this to your friends, uh, they'd at least be surprised and probably many of them would also be quite offended that you would say such an extreme, blunt and clear statement on marriage. It is not an easy thing that Jesus says here. But why does Jesus have this understanding? Why, why is he so blunt and so countercultural in what he teaches here? And to understand that, we need to go to Matthew 19. As we, uh, we heard before from Desi, uh, Matthew 19, and we'll read again verse 3 to 6. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So why does Jesus say this? Well, part of the reason is that because he knows God has joined every wife and every husband together. It's actually not man's doing, it's God's doing. The logic goes, and what God has joined together in God's authority and perfection, let man not then try and separate in man's limited understanding and his weakness. Jesus understands that marriage is more than just a ceremony, it's more than just an arrangement of legal convenience. Marriage is a form of relationship ordained by God and created by God. In fact, God invented marriage Right back at the beginning of time, God created it. Who would know more about marriage than the Creator? Two separate people, a husband and wife, are joined together and they are united, not by a ceremony, not by a man, not by a ring, but they're united by God. And we learn elsewhere in Ephesians 5 that marriage is a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church. We can tend to think of marriage in just human terms, but actually it's reflecting a much greater relationship. How we treat our marriage partner is meant to show those around us, especially our non-Christian friends, what the love of Christ is like. The love that Christ has for the church, the love that the church has for Christ is meant to be modelled in our marriages. But not only is marriage you know, good for God's kingdom and good for our witness to non-Christian friends, uh, but it may or may not surprise you to learn that marriage is also good for us uh, and it's also good for our communities. An organisation called the Institute for American Values conducted some research in 2005 into the impact that marriage has on the people in it. They had many findings. Let me read you some of the more pertinent ones. Married men earn between 10 and 40% more than single men with similar education and job histories. Married people, especially married men, have longer life expectancies than otherwise similar singles. It's not clear whether that's partly because wives tend to ban married men from getting motorbikes, but uh, (laughs) for whatever reason, married men uh, live longer than single men. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) No comment. Uh, 
divorce and unmarried uh, childbearing significantly increases poverty rates of both mothers and children. Married mothers have lower rates of depression than single or cohabiting mothers. Children who live with their own two married parents actually enjoy better physical health than children who live in other family forms. And parents will divorce approximately doubles the odds that the children of those parents will also divorce. Divorce impacts not only the parents but also the children in a significant way. And there were many, many other findings. Uh, If you Google them, you'll find them straight away, but these were some of the more pertinent ones. So if marriage was created by God, if marriage reflects God's character and if marriage is so beneficial for society, then of course it begs the question, why do we still have divorce? To find the answer to this, we only need to look a couple of verses on in Matthew chapter 19. In verse 8 we see that divorce occurs because of our hard hearts, because of our sin. In 1975 the Australian Family Law Act came into being and it introduced the concept of no-fault marriage, uh, sorry, no-fault divorce. So no longer to obtain a divorce did you have to demonstrate any fault. It was simply, it, it, it may have made sense legally to have no-fault divorce but The concept of no-fault divorce is a lie. It's not true. Divorce only occurs because of fault. If there was no sin, there was no fault, then there would be no divorce. So then how do we apply all this understanding to our marriages today? I think the first thing we need to realise is that marriage is, in a way, constantly under attack. not only our sin that makes marriage hard but also the world's view on marriage and its lack of support for marriage makes it hard. So we need to work hard at sustaining and nourishing our marriages. So we understand the tremendous value of our relationships and our marriage and the witness that is to people around us. Uh, It should encourage us to work hard at setting aside quality time, spending that time together and working out issues. I don't know what your good quality time things are. Um, Maybe it's booking a date night every fortnight. Maybe it's booking a weekend away or a special day trip. Maybe it's setting up a romantic dinner out or a night in the city. Uh, Maybe it's just something as simple as bringing home a surprise or a card or some flowers or something else for your wife or husband when you get home. The second way I think this applies is that we need to remind ourselves and be encouraged that each day we spend as a husband and wife is another day that we're modelling the love of Christ and the church to our non-Christian friends. Every day we spend together as a husband and wife, people can see what the love of Christ is like. They can get a glimpse into what it means to experience God's love. Our marriage is part of our evangelism and investing in our marriage is investing in evangelism as well. And the third way the third application for us around marriage is that we need to understand that because none of us are perfect, uh, at least part of the the fault or the sin of the problem in our marriage uh, will be ours. And so we of course need to be willing to apologise when we're at fault and we need to be willing to forgive when our partner apologises to us. I don't know uh, if you've read George Orwell's novel Animal Farm. Uh, it's an older novel but uh, there's a famous quote in there that says everyone is equal but some are more equal than others and uh, 
in, in a way, the same can be said of adultery. It's, in a way, it's a sin. All sin is sin. All sin is equal. But in the context of marriage, there's one sin that's more damaging and more insidious than any other sin, and that sin is adultery. And to understand why it's so damaging, we need to go back to the owner's manual, back to the beginning of time when God created marriage. If we had time today to, to work through Genesis 2, we'd see that the, the key act that seals a marriage between a husband and a wife is the sexual union of the husband and the wife. This is how the husband and the wife become one flesh. And so what happens if the husband or the wife then goes and joins their body to another person who's not their husband or wife? Well, in a sense, they're actually marrying that other person. They're joining their body in union with that other person. And they're taking away the affection and the energy and the love from their spouse and they're giving it to someone who has no right to receive it. For single people, adultery takes away that purity of your heart and your mind that God wants us to bring into our marriages. God doesn't want us to take baggage, unhelpful habits, unhelpful ways of thinking into our marriages. He wants us to come into them pure so that we can give all of ourselves to our marriage partner. Adultery connects us to sin at a very intimate and physiological level, which is why Jesus points out this specific sin for us today. So what is Jesus' clear command here in verse 32? We need to understand, as Jesus says this, Jesus is speaking as God. He's speaking not as a man, but as a good and perfect God, expecting a perfect standard of his people. So we've seen today the later part of Jesus' command in verse 31 and 32. There should be no divorce except where adultery has occurred. And then in Josh's uh, fantastic sermon last week, we heard the earlier part of the command. There should be no adultery. We should be getting rid of it out of our lives. Whatever it takes, we should be getting rid of it. So for full understanding, we put the the earlier and the later parts of Jesus' teaching together and we realise Jesus is really teaching here that there should be no divorce. And if we truly eliminated the sin from our lives, if we truly took to heart what last week's sermon was about, taking the radical steps, then, then there would be no divorce without sin, without divorce. Uh, let me just pause here and take a moment out uh, from the context and, ju- and say a few things uh, before we move on. Um, It's important to note as we're faced with Jesus' perfect and demanding command here that this is not addressing separation um, and, you know, we know separation is sometimes necessary where there is physical or emotional abuse in relationships. So this is not stopping separation, this is not making people stay in these really harmful relationships. Uh, And it's important to note that the purpose of this passage today is not to condemn people or induce guilt trips or or make people feel useless and hopeless. The purpose of these words here are to show us the path forward in righteousness. The purpose of these words are to show us what what God wants us to do in our lives today and tomorrow and the next day until he returns. I'd encourage anyone, if you have concerns or are troubled by this, uh, don't let it sit, take the chance, catch up with Garth, catch up with an elder, catch up with any wiser, older Christian person that can help you talk through the issues and understand them. God's given us our family at Monty so that we can be supported and encouraged through these. Uh, The last thing he wants is for us to to think about them or try to deal with them alone. 
So as we, as we understand these verses, what should our personal response be? I think the way we need to respond to sexual sin in our lives is beautifully illustrated in a story uh, I found on Serena and Josh. Let me read that to you now. Serena was shocked the day she discovered evidence that her husband, who was also a pastor, was having an affair. As the weeks progressed, she learned that this was not Josh's first affair. Years of lust and battles with pornography had taken their toll on Josh's heart and it seemed like their marriage was at the breaking point. They decided their marriage was worth saving. Josh took a 50% pay cut and moved his family to a new town far away, putting distance between himself and his previous wife. But more importantly, this move also brought Serena and Josh closer to a new church community. During a mountain retreat sponsored by his church, on the Friday night a group of men sat in their cabin in a circle and one of the men handed out some picture cards and asked the guys to take a picture card that represented their situation at that point. Josh picked out a picture of an old rusty bike, no, no wheels, no chain, useless. When asked about his car, Josh hoped he wouldn't have to divulge too much information, uh, but the men pressed him and at that moment the floodgates opened. He confessed everything to this new band of brothers, the, the porn, the cheating, the lying, all the details came out. The men gathered around him, embraced him, prayed for him and built up his fragile heart. It was the beginning of some great relationships for Josh. After the mountain, treat, uh, mountain retreat, a small group of men began meeting weekly to encourage each other. Like Josh, these men had also divulged their dirty and sordid pasts during the retreat. He knew, meeting with them, they were men who experienced great change in their lives. They were men who knew the allure of sin, but they also knew how to fight it. Every man in Josh's group had a, a program called Covenant Eyes on their computer uh, and each week they would get one another's internet reports of all the internet sites they'd been to. Uh, as they met weekly uh, to encourage one another, they, they weren't shy in coming forward about uh, questioning Josh on which sites he may or may not have been to. Over time, these friendships moulded Josh into a new man. More than just Josh being accountable to them, they felt accountable for Josh as well. They were going to help Josh be a man of faithfulness and integrity even in the messiest seasons of failure. The story illustrates a number of things we can do for our friends. Uh, We can always pray for and encourage them. Uh, I think it also illustrates for good friends, uh, don't be afraid to ask personal questions. Don't be afraid to ask how they're really going. We're great at saying, how are you going? Yeah, good mate. But uh, don't be afraid to to dig a little deeper for, for good friends that you have a good relationship with. And the story illustrates lots of personal actions we may need to take if adultery is an issue for us. I think the first first and most important step is call in the army. Get some good help. Get some powerful help behind you. Seek God's help and God's power in your life to change your heart. And seek the friendship of someone, your your own gender, a mate, who can walk with you and pray with you and encourage you as you as you fight that sin. It might be that we need to install the program Covenant Eyes or something similar on our computers and our phones and our tablets to stop our eyes wandering. It might be that we need to stop reading those books or magazines or watching those movies that just make us feel like, you know, our husband and wife, you know, they're not Brad Pitt, they're not George Clooney, you know, they're not doing it for me. 
But, uh, but unless we're Angelina Jolie, it's, uh, we've really got to be careful with that. We, we need to be reading books that help us and nourish our, our marriages, not lead us away. And if we think of those in our lives with whom we've got relationships with, maybe we realise there's someone of the opposite gender that we may have stepped over the line a little bit in how, how intimately we're getting emotionally involved with that person, how much we're talking to them, maybe how much time we're spending with them. Maybe we need to realise that we've stepped over the line of what a normal gen- uh, friendship should be and we need to pull back from that. Affairs don't just happen overnight, they develop over time, so let's not give them the time and the space to develop. One of my mentors once described sexual temptation like a bus on a, on a hill. When the bus is at the top, it's very easy to stop, relatively easy to stop, but once the bus starts going down the hill, it's, uh, it's incredibly hard to stop before it hits the bottom. And sexual sin can be very alluring and deceptive, so it's much easier to nip it in the bud each time it niggles rather than let it get to full swing before we try to stop it. So we move now from verse 32 and the confronting topic uh, of divorce and adultery and we move into verse 33 and Jesus appears to completely change topic and starts talking about vows and oaths. And if you're like me, you go from being somewhat confronted in the earlier verses to being a bit puzzled. Why has Jesus suddenly changed topic and, and gone off talking about oaths and vows? But I think there's a distinct link between these two topics for often... Where there is adultery uh, and divorce, there is an accompanying denial of sin uh, and often there's an accompanying deceit as people try to hide their secrets and stop those closest to them from finding out. And of course, all of us are tempted from time to time to bend the truth in all different areas of our lives. This is a matter of integrity, not just for married people, but for all of us. Jesus starts off looking at integrity in speech by looking specifically at oaths and vows there are actually still a few occasions when we will make vows or oaths. As Brendan uh, spoke to us before, we make vows and oaths when we get married. We'll all have stood in a church before God and, and taken our vows to love and to hold, for better or worse, forsaking all others till death do us part. James, I hope you've got that memorised by now. Yeah, good. Uh, while we haven't specifically sworn these vows in the name of the Lord, uh, they're obviously very solemn and deep vows Uh, that we need to be mindful that we we keep. And if any of us ever end up in court, either as a witness or as an offended or plaintiff, uh, we'll be required to swear an oath in God's name to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Uh, And this this is designed to be a biblical oath. This is how you swear. You swear in the Lord's name, no other way is valid. You swear in the Lord's name on what you will do and then you're bound to do that. But we must be very careful about swearing oaths. The oaths in a courtroom, the oaths when we get married and any other oaths or vows that we may make. It's probably not such a big issue, I think, for us today. We don't tend to get in the habit of swearing vows. Uh, But we need to be very careful if we ever do. For if we swear, even if we we promise, not to the same extent, but if we promise something in in rage or anger or in, in just rashness and we make a promise that we can't deliver on later then it counts against us. We've said we'd do something that we wouldn't do. In verse 34 we see Jesus wants to save us from the consequences of making rash or hot-headed oaths or complicating our lives with, with foolish or ill-thought-through promises. 
So Jesus says, keep it real simple. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Or to put it another way, do what you say and say what you do. Make it real simple. Of course, it's, it might be simple, but it's often not easy. Uh, how often do we find ourselves telling someone we'll be at an event and then oh, something else more exciting has come up or I didn't look at my calendar and I'm double booked and we have to go back to at least one of those people and say, you know how I said yes, I actually meant no. Uh, or how often do we find ourselves saying, you know, we'll have something cleaned up or finished by tomorrow or by next week and then tomorrow or next week comes and it's still sitting there waiting. I don't know if you ever find yourselves at work maybe talking to your boss and you know he just wants the answer. You know what answer he was looking for. And you think, if I just gave him the answer, he'd go away and my <laughs> life would be so much easier. Uh, and of course, tax time is coming up soon. We've passed uh, the 30th of June. Uh, I don't know if, uh, about you, but uh, there's always that temptation on your list of tax deductible items, you know, just to squeeze another 10 or 20 or $30 of stuff in there. You know, They're not going to know if I didn't incur those laundry expenses, but there's always a temptation. I think this teaching on, on faithfulness and integrity of speech has two main applications for us modern Aussies. Uh, firstly, I think we need to be very careful when we commit to do things, make sure that we do them, uh, and if we can't, then we don't. If you've ever said, I'll pray for you, and then forgot all about it, you'll know what I mean. And if you're like me, uh, we may need to get better at saying no, or at least at saying not yet. Uh, I know of some foreign uh, Christians who came uh, came into the country and uh, and they got really offended because they came to a new church and people were saying, yeah, we'd have to have you over for dinner. You know, we'd love to go out with you on a Sunday afternoon. We'll have to go out for coffee. And not one of those people actually invited them out. Everyone said they would, but nobody invited them out. They got really offended that people were saying things they weren't doing. So we must be people who do what we say. As we close today, let me remind us of where we've been. Uh, These words were not given to us to induce a guilt trip or to make us feel hopeless or powerless in the face of sin. Jesus' teaching is much more than that. Jesus has given us this word today to show us the incredible value of marriage, how it benefits not only the husband and the wife in the marriage, but also the whole community around them. But we must nourish and sustain our marriages We must ensure that we spend the quality time together, we forgive each other, we apologise, we keep our marriages healthy for they're constantly in danger of the mess that our sin can cause. And we have looked at the need for faithfulness in marriage to remain pure in our hearts and in our minds. Let me encourage you, if you've been convicted of something in your life that needs to change today, don't wait. Do it right away. Install covenant eyes throw out the books or the magazines or the movies, change projects or change jobs, delete those mobile numbers out of your phone, burn those old letters, redo your tax return, whatever it is, don't let it wait. Do it today. And call in the army. Get some powerful help. Enlist God's help every hour, every minute of the day if if you need to and enlist a mate's help or two or three or four. The time to stop the bus is at the top of the hill once it starts moving it might already be too late let me pray 
Father, we, we know that when it comes to fighting sin, for man this is impossible, but in you all things are possible. And so we ask you, Father, for your help and your power to fight the sin in our lives today. Father, please be merciful to us. Please give us the vision of a pure heart. Please help us to change our lives to follow that, Father. I pray that you would fill our heart vision, our mind vision, our thought vision with your kingdom, with your will and with your purity, Father. You would help us to get rid of the sin in our hearts and you would make us men and women of faithfulness and integrity in our marriage and in our speech. In your name we pray all these things, Father. Amen.